Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. She walks into a pitch dark apartment. All the drapes are pulled. She makes her way through the apartment, heads out to the Arcadia door, which looks out on the pool, calling out, Bob, 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 no answer. She ducks back in the apartment, kind of walks back in, takes a right, which would take her to the master bedroom. She had been there before, by the way, because she had slept with Bob Crane twice. She ducks in the bedroom, and she sees a form in bed with dark, she thinks, a woman with dark hair in bed. Dark streaks. It turns out to be these are the blood streaks on Bob Crane. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Uh, The 1978 murder of actor and American icon Bob Crane uh, remains one of the most high-profile, unsolved celebrity murders of all time. And now, shocking results from new DNA tests in this cold case cast doubt on who killed Bob Crane. Did the police spend decades chasing an innocent man? John Hook is a veteran news reporter, television anchor for over 30 years in Arizona. John was, uh, has won more than a dozen Emmys for his reporting. He was named Associate Press Anchor of the Year five times. He's covered every major story from the O.J. Simpson murder case to the impeachment of President Bill Clinton and the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco, as well as every presidential election since 1996. And he anchors Fox 10 News at 5 and 9 and hosts the Emmy Award-winning Fox 10 Newsmaker Sunday. He's a graduate of Arizona State University, He was a 2002 inductee into the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism Hall of Fame. And his book is his first book, Who Killed Bob Crane? The Final Close-Up. John Hook, welcome. How are you? Richard, great. It is great to speak with you again. I so enjoy your show. You know, we've talked about this before, but it's fascinating. Of all the, the news stories that you have covered, you know, your first book, to be about Bob Crane. I mean, I know you grew up watching him. I was a, I was a, I was a huge fan of Hogan's Heroes. Mm-hmm. But, but why, why Bob Crane's case? What captivated you so? I think, Richard, it's because I grew up with him, as you mentioned, but he's been part of my life for my entire life. Uh, the show went on the air in 1965. It ran through 1971. I was a little young to get it then, but 
as it went into heavy rerun, which it did right. in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond, he's with us today. And then when I come down to Arizona State University to go to school, I come down here in August of 1978, a month after the murder happened in Scottsdale. So again, I'm besieged by Bob Crane news. This was the biggest story that had ever happened in the Phoenix area. Huge story. Right, and and uh, for people who don't fully grasp who Bob Crane was, I mean, there was a life uh, before Colonel Hogan. Uh, he was right. a celebrated, uh, very talented broadcaster in, in Los Angeles. That's right. He worked at KNX in L.A., and before that he had been on the East Coast bumping around in smaller markets, Bristol, Connecticut, uh, Hornell, New York, Bridgeport, Connecticut. He was so good, Richard, that CBS in New York took notice of him, and they realized he was siphoning off some of their listeners. So they actually did kind of a reconnaissance mission, and they shipped him off to L.A. to get him out of the East Coast uh, area of dominant influence, ADI. And they got rid of him. They got him out of New York, and they said, let's steal this guy and, and put him on KNX in L.A., which is a CBS flagship out there. And he had a madcap morning show, and... He was so good. He became eventually dubbed King of the L.A. Airwaves. And his show, everyone was listening to it, from Hollywood producers to actors to anybody in the, in the entertainment industry, listening to him in the morning do this madcap morning show. And producers started to take notice of this guy and his comedic genius, and that's how he ended up on television. That's how he eventually ended up with the role of Colonel Robert Hogan on Hogan's Heroes. And... Um after Hogan's Heroes um, wrapped up in the early 70s, Bing Crosby Productions, I was always fascinated that uh, it was produced by, by Bing Crosby. Right. Uh, but uh, Bob, unfortunately, as talented as he was, his career kind of went south. I mean, there was a short-lived series, I remember it in the mid-70s, playing opposite Hope Lang. I think it was called The Bob Crane Show or something That's like right. that. Yeah. Uh, but after that, uh, not much work aside from dinner theater. That's right. He got shots on Love Boat. He, he got MacGyver. He got a few shows. But he was kind of a bit, bit part. I mean, you could not escape. I mean, this guy at the Zenith was attracting that show 30 million people a week. So he became kind of typecast. I mean, he was Colonel Hogan. That's how everyone knew him. Any bar that he would walk into, they'd go, Hogan, Hogan. They'd yell at him. They knew him from that, and he was in such... Heavy uh, rerun that people just instantly knew the guy. He was, think of it in, in today's terms, this would be Tim Allen or Ashton Kutcher or Ray Romano or Charlie Sheen. Right. That kind of guy. So just huge presence and probably bigger in some respects because so many eyeballs were on the show. Was he as affable uh, on uh, on the set? I mean, what I know he um, he and um, uh, Richard Dawson. Richard Dawson had a, yeah. a kind of a sour relationship based on maybe professional jealousy on Dawson's part. Right, exactly. But but did he get along with you know Robert Clary and Ivan Dixon, who went on to direct some television as well? Did what did they have, did they have nice things to say about him? Yes, um, all of those folks turned out for his funeral in 1978. Richard Dawson did not, and we can get into the reasons why. Um, Dawson wanted to be the star of that show. Newkirk, right. right. Newkirk. Great character. Newkirk. But the problem was, having a Brit as the head of the Allied guys working 
under the noses of the Germans in Stalag 13. It didn't make sense. And I think Dawson eventually realized it, too. But Dawson was much more accomplished, I think. He felt he was much more polished as a TV performer. So he bristled a little bit that this neophyte in television kind of one-upped him. Um, Crane had been on... He had been on the Dick Van Dyke show. He did a recurring role there. He was on the Donna Reed show and was a very popular sideman on that show for a time. Um, but when he got into into Hogan's Heroes, that was the launching point for him. And he became that character, and it was it fit him. It was pretty much the guy you heard on the radio. It was very much Bob Crane in many respects, so it was an easy part for him to play. Right. Wisecracking, handsome, charming, quick-witted, all of that. And a devoted family man, which has been really kind of uh, uh, overshadowed. Uh, most people are familiar with uh, Greg Kinnear, a great actor, portraying... Right. Bob Crane in, uh, was it Autofocus? Autofocus, yes, and it, 2002. It, it sort of delved into the darker side. Uh, Bob Crane was, by all accounts, a sex addict. And uh, I guess while he was in L.A. doing the uh, the radio, he hooked up with this uh, Sony, was he a sales rep, John Carpenter? Yeah, he was one of the first representatives for Sony Electronics in the country. They were just getting started with video, and it was actually on the set of Hogan's Heroes that Richard Dawson introduced John Carpenter to Bob Crane. This was a relationship that would set them on a course of meeting women, a fascination with electronics, a fascination with photography, and that would eventually end in murder. The question is, was John Carpenter the killer? That's the central question in this case. And that's what we delved back into, trying to use modern DNA science to prove once and for all who that blood in John Carpenter's car belongs to. There was blood found in Carpenter's car after Bob Crane's murder in June of 1978. Yes. Before I, I'll get you to give us the, sort of the thumbnail sketch of um, that date in June when Crane's body was discovered, but I just want to clarify. Now, the, the videotape equipment was um, was used to to record. These, these were sort of early sex tapes that Bob Crane was making, and I think it's important to point out that the... Uh, the women that are in these uh, involved in these uh, videos, they were willing participants. We know that for a fact, correct? Well, everything that I've seen, yes. And and the reason I'm so certain of this, Richard, is that um, when we look at pictures of Bob Crane's apartment, when you come upon the picture of the video equipment set up in Bob Crane's apartment in Scottsdale, and this was typical how he would do this when he was out on the road performing in dinner theater. This is after Hogan's Heroes was off the air. He would set up this equipment, and it looks like it fell off a Soyuz space capsule. Right. It's so big and bulky, it's all pointed at the couch in the living room where the women would have sex with Bob Crane, and sometimes John Carpenter as well. They couldn't miss it. There is no way you could not know that you were being recorded, because the picture would be up on the TV screen. And the videos that I've seen, and I've seen several, the women are mugging for the camera. They know, fully know, that they are on videotape. Right. And they're enjoying it. I mean, they're being seduced by Colonel Hogan. When he would go into a bar, the place would go crazy. And he would have his pick of the litter. It sounds very crass. But that's kind of how it went. And Bob Crane had no trouble meeting and betting many, many women. So Carpenter became a hanger-on. Uh, he provided the, the technical uh, equipment, the expertise, and um, 
uh, I guess at a certain point became kind of a nuisance for Bob Crane. And Crane communicated this idea, I guess, to, was it Bob Crane Jr.? It was, yeah. He told Bob Crane Jr. in the days before the Scottsdale trip, and I'll quote here, um, he said, Carpenter is becoming a pain in the ass. I need to make some changes. He was feeling that Carpenter was becoming kind of an albatross, hanging around all the time. And on the trip to Scottsdale, it's very important to note, and this had also happened in Dallas, the trip before Scottsdale, he would typically do this dinner theater run of beginner's luck for a month at a time. The theater would put him up in in an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment. In the years before, Carpenter would meet Crane out on the road, ostensibly to do video work for Sony. Uh, By that time, it was Akai. He had left Sony and was working for Akai Video. Um, he would say that he was doing business on the road, but it was all about picking up women. He might make one stop at a video shop, and that was it. In the four days, he would be with Crane, typically a three- or four-day stay. All of it was built around going out and picking up women at night after Crane got off the uh, set of the show, Beginner's Luck. On this particular trip to Scottsdale, Carpenter was booked into a hotel down the street, the Sunburst Hotel. This is very significant in the eyes of investigators because they felt that at that point Crane was emancipating. He didn't want Carpenter hanging around anymore. He didn't want him in the apartment with him. He wanted some separation from this guy. And so there's evidence that he was starting to distance himself and sever the relationship. And there's even an account of a very tense conversation between the two at an establishment in Phoenix two days before the murder that police believe was the breakup conversation where Crane, they believe, told Carpenter, look, we can't go on as we've been doing. I, we need to change this. This is it. This is the last trip. And the Carpenter took it very badly and that that led him to kill Bob Crane. All right. Take us back to uh, uh, that, that day in June of 1978 when a, um, a young actress uh, arrives at the, uh, at the hotel looking for Bob Crane. That would be Victoria Berry. She arrived at Crane's apartment at about 2.15 in the afternoon on June 29, 1978. They had an arrangement. They were going to meet to do an overdub of a scene from Beginner's Luck that John Carpenter, amazingly, shot three days earlier at the Windmill Dinner Theater. There was an audio problem, and she wanted to have this because she was trying to get TV work in Hollywood. She wanted to overdub that and redo the audio. Crane was going to help her redo the audio and overdub. She gets to the apartment, knocks on the door. Bob's car is there. The paper is still on the front porch, on the front doorstep. She's knocking on the door. Bob, Bob, knocking on the door. Nothing's happening. She gently turns the doorknob, and it's open. This is very unusual because Bob Crane always locked his doors. But she thought... Okay, he's here, he's in back, he's out by the pool. She walks into a pitch-dark apartment. All the drapes are pulled. It is completely dark in there. She makes her way through the apartment, heads out to the Arcadia door, which looks out on the pool, calling out, Bob, Bob, Bob. No answer. She thinks he's outside. She looks outside. Bob isn't out by the pool. She ducks back in the apartment, kind of walks back in, takes a right, which would take her to the master bedroom. She had been there before, by the way, because she had slept with Bob Crane twice during their run of beginner's luck, at least twice that we know of. She ducks in the bedroom, 
and she sees a form in bed with dark, she thinks a woman with dark hair in bed. Dark streaks. Turns out to be these are the blood streaks on Bob Crane. She believes it's the long hair of a woman. She looks closer and she thinks, oh my God, a woman has killed herself in Bob's bed. That was her first thought. She thought it was a woman. Then she starts thinking, maybe it's a man. Is it Bob? Is it John Carpenter? That's how close they were. She thought maybe John Carpenter was in that bed and, and was dead. Right. She didn't know what was going on. She runs out of the apartment. They call the police. Police and fire arrive and go into the apartment, and Bob Crane is dead. She doesn't know still that whether, who that is. And she's probably praying against all odds that it's not Bob Crane. And that's how it starts. That's how this odyssey of 38 years begins. The police arrive, uh, and while they're investigating the crime scene, the telephone rings, and it's John Carpenter calling Bob Crane's apartment. He, sp- he speaks to the police. What, what, what goes on in that conversation? Well, he calls the apartment, and they have Victoria Berry pick up the phone. She is in there making a witness statement. She's in the apartment. It's about 105 degrees out by this point. So they ducked her into the apartment where it was a little cooler and had her write out a witness statement. This, again, gives rise to questions about the scene being contaminated, letting her go back in. Nonetheless, the phone rings. Lieutenant Ron Dean says, pick up the phone. She picks it up. She goes, hello? Hey, it's John Carpenter. Who's this? It's Victoria. Oh, hi, Victoria. Is Bob around? I'm back in L.A. Carpenter left that morning. The day that Crane's body was discovered, he left and went back to Los Angeles. He was taken by cab to Sky Harbor Airport to fly out. The plan was, though, Richard, for Crane to take Carpenter to the airport that morning. It was noted in Crane's day planner by his bedside, spattered with his blood, John leaves 10 a.m. That was the plan. The plan changed. Carpenter says, yeah, I went back to L.A. I'm here. Um, Where's Bob? And she's a great actress. She says, he's not here right now. At that point, uh, Ron Dean takes the phone, grabs it out of her hand. Uh, This is Lieutenant Dean. We have a situation here at the apartment. Who's this? Oh, this is uh, John Carpenter. I'm back in L.A. I'm just checking on Bob. I wanted to let him know I'm back here. I'm fine. Everything's good. He keeps repeating that. It's interesting. I'm here in L.A. I'm not there. I'm here in L.A. That's exactly right. And police would later believe that he was already building an alibi and sniffing around for information on where the cops were on this case. That's pretty brazen to call the crime scene where you have, if, in fact, that's the case, where you've just killed somebody and, and, and talk to the police. Yes, and they believe that he was sniffing around, that he was eager to find out if Bob Crane's body had been discovered. He had also called the Windmill Dinner Theater that day, knowing full well, according to police, that Crane wouldn't be there. Crane was never there, rarely there in the afternoon. But Carpenter called the windmill twice, asking about Bob. Is he there? Is he going to be performing tonight? Uh, this is John Carpenter. I'm just calling to let him know I'm okay. Let him know that I got back to L.A. Everything's fine. Police believe he was building an alibi. He, and then when he calls the apartment, they believe he was returning to the scene of the crime telephonically. Now, because time is tight, um, now, did the, the police go to L.A. to interview him, or do they, they bring did. him They bring him to Scottsdale? 
they first went to L.A. It took a couple of days because when they Carpenter called the apartment a second time, then they really got suspicious. He called back about 15 minutes later. They're like, who is this John Carpenter guy calling? They got very suspicious. And Ron Dean, for one, was not going to offer up anything because he thought, what, who is this guy? Why the keen interest in what we're doing here? Well, Carpenter says it's completely innocent. He was alarmed. The cops were there, and he was trying to figure out what was going on. That's his take. Cops went out after they located, after some suspicion, they located Carpenter's rental car a day later. They find blood in the rental car on the passenger side door. They test this blood, but that's not known when they first interview Carpenter, but blood is found in his car. They go out to L.A. on, um, I believe it's the next day or two days later, maybe in July 1st. Maybe in July 1st. They go out July 1st. They interview him at his apartment that he shared with a stripper who he had shacked up with, even though he was married. This is Carpenter. And they interview him, and they say, you know, there was blood found in your car, and he was taken aback. And they said, there's some blood in your car. Did Bob Crane ever bleed in your car? No. Did you ever bleed in your car? No. Was your car always locked? Yes. They decide enough's enough. They say, listen, uh, we're going to take you back to Scottsdale. We want to question you further. And Carpenter says, fine. So they meet the next day. This is July 2nd. They fly back to Scottsdale and interview Carpenter, which I have listened to that interrogation on audio tape. It's fascinating. They don't accuse him during that, but they are really working him. And he says, look, you know, Bob's my friend. I had no reason to kill him. Um, I'm sad he's dead. I don't understand what's going on. I didn't have anything to do with it. Blah, blah, blah. But Carpenter remained very cool during that interview and even at the end offers to take a lie detector test or take sodium pentothal to help them. He also gave them a blood sample, went to the hospital. They said, we need to eliminate you as the source of that blood. Can we get blood from you? He said, sure. He was very cooperative. Now, it's important to note that in 1978, uh, there was no DNA testing, at least if there right. was, it was in the in ex- very experimental stages. It probably wouldn't have been even admissible at that point. So they do a, a simple blood test to test for the type, the blood type. That's right. And what do they find? It's type B, type B positive, found in only 9% of the population. Bob Crane's blood type is? Exactly. Type, type B. B positive. You can imagine at that point... Carpenter is vaulted up the list to the very top of suspects. Blood found in his car. He leaves the day that Crane is murdered. He's one of the last people to see him alive. You can imagine what police are thinking at that point. And the murder weapon. Where is it? Never found. In the lower right-hand corner, there's a V-shaped blood stain on the foot of Bob Crane's bed. Right. This is on the foot of the bed on the right side, below Bob Crane's bed. There it is, yes. There's a V-shaped blood stain. This took investigators a long time to figure out what caused that. They didn't know if the murder weapon had been wiped down twice. They later came to say that V-shaped blood stain is from a camera tripod, bloodied with Bob Crane's blood after he was bludgeoned and laid down on the bed while the killer went out to the front room, cut a piece of video cable, the power cord from the video camera, to tie around Bob Crane's neck in the throes of death. That's what they believe that V-shaped blood stain was. The problem was, in Crane's apartment, it turned out later, when they reopened the case in 1990, he had two tripods, twin tripods that were matching. One was in the apartment, 
but there was a second one missing. So John Carpenter... The tripod was never found, and what you're uh, seeing there is a replica that was used to test. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. So John Carpenter immediately is the number one suspect. But right. there were others, were there not? I mean, th- th- there were other people with motives, perhaps. the uh, the um, Bob Crane was in the midst of a messy divorce. That's right. Uh, who else? Well, you know, there are myriad jealous husbands, jealous boyfriends, women who might have wanted their videotape back, photographs back. He took still pictures as well of, of the women he bedded. There are any number of people, Richard, who would have wanted to do Bob Crane harm. The problem was here that John Carpenter vaulted up the list with all of this evidence. The blood in his car really was the one where they said, well, what are the odds of blood in his car of the victim's blood type found one day after the killing? All right. When we come back, we'll talk about why John Carpenter walked and uh, this new DNA test that will shed new light on the uh, murder of Bob Crane. Perhaps we're getting close to closure for Bob Crane Jr. and his siblings. We'll find out when John Hook and I continue our conversation. Stay with us. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. And you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. Better help is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com. That's help, H-E-L-P. BetterHelp.com slash unlimited. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp, and Conspiracy Unlimited. Listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash unlimited. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, good, good, a handsome man Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. John Hook stays with us. Who killed Bob Crane? The final close-up. We were talking about uh, John Carpenter and uh, all... Everything points to him. We've got the blood stain, the the uh, type B negative uh, on the uh, the passenger side door of his rental car. Bob Crane is B negative. Only nine percent of the population is B negative. So why did John Carpenter walk? Well, the problem was it took sixteen years to bring him to trial. Um, in nineteen seventy eight, 
The prosecutor at the time here in Arizona, in Phoenix, did not feel that they had probable cause. I know it sounds crazy, blood in Carpenter's car, but there was no eyewitness. There was no murder weapon. There was no confession, even though they tried like heck to get one out of Carpenter. He never cracked. They interviewed him twice. I've listened to both of them. He held his ground. Um, they just didn't feel they had it. Blood in the car, but remember, in, in, a, in a place the size of Phoenix, this could be, oh, I don't know, 60,000, 70,000 people who have type B positive blood. That's an excellent point. So they just felt too circumstantial, not enough there, and that just simply thinking it isn't enough. You've got to have proof. They didn't have it. So two prosecutors passed on it. Then in 1990, they reopened the case. A new county attorney came in, Rick Romley. Rick Romley is a former Marine, lost both of his legs in Vietnam. He's a tough guy. And he said, this case deserves to go to trial, and we're going to put this guy on. We believe he's a killer. We're going to put him on trial. The only thing, Richard, that materially changed from the early days to 1990 was a photograph of a speck of tissue. This had been long overlooked of Bob, uh, well, it was in John Carpenter's car. Along with the blood, there was a speck of tissue. Looks like a, under a magnifying, uh, under magnification, it looks like a cluster of salmon eggs. Investigators believe that this was brain tissue. And when they found that picture, they said, this is our smoking gun. If, if there's blood in the car and there's brain tissue in John Carpenter's car, he is a guy. How did they miss it? How did they and how did they miss the photograph? It was sitting in the in the evidence box the whole time. That's right. They when they started going back through the photos, they only had six photos when they reopened the case in 1990. And Jim Raines, who was the guy who really spearheaded the investigation, along with Barry Vassell, Scottsdale PD, he said there have got to be more pictures. They finally found the roll of 21. Apparently, a police detective overlooked this. Um, in the early stages and said, well, these six pictures are the best ones of the blood in the car. He didn't really know what that speck was, and he discarded it. When Rain saw it, he said, oh, my God, that is brain tissue. Oh, dear. And they went to pathologists who also said, that is brain tissue. The problem was, Richard, if it was collected, it was lost or misplaced. So the jury had the photograph only, not the sample. And the judge at trial said, you can disregard anything that the prosecution can't produce in court. Even though they've got a photo of it, you can disregard it. And that's what they did. They didn't know what it was at trial. Secondarily, when it went to trial in 1994, O.J. Simpson was happening. And on the backdrop of all the discussion of DNA, the, ju the jury wanted DNA to prove not only was there blood in, in John Carpenter's car that matched Bob Crane's blood type, they wanted somebody to say, we did DNA on it. It's not only his blood type, it's from Bob Crane. Right, right. It is Bob Crane's blood. They didn't have it. Everything to that point, Richard, was inconclusive on the DNA. They tested it four times, and they all came back inconclusive. We should point out, though, the other one of the other motivations for you writing this book was you met Bob Crane Jr., and here's a family that has had no closure, and his story to you really touched you. So when you reached out to him and you decided, I'm going to write this book, what was his reaction? Well, I really, it began as a television story, Richard, because I'm an anchor and reporter here at Fox 10 in Phoenix and have been for many, many years. 
I called Bob after interviewing him in March of 2015. This is two years ago, exactly. And after I interviewed him, I just felt the profound sadness he felt with no resolution as to who killed his father, no solid proof as to who killed his father. I called him. I said, Bob, are you sitting down? And I just met him. I said, I, I want to do something. I want to try something. You need answers, and I want to see if I can get them. I want to see if we can find the evidence in the case. And if we find it, can we retest the DNA and the blood evidence in the case and maybe get an answer that we could not get in 1994, the last time this stuff was tested? With modern DNA science, could we get an answer? A silence on the phone. I thought I'd offended him. And he said, oh, my God, do you think you could do that? I said, I'm going to try. Had he said, Richard, no, let sleeping dogs lie, right. I would not have done it. I would not have done it. Sure. Did the Arizona, did the Scottsdale Police Department want to let sleeping dogs lie? Because my sense is that this case was starting to become kind of an embarrassment. I think for them, yes. And uh, they, they were not aware of what I was doing because the evidence, as it turned out, was in the custody of the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, not Scottsdale PD. That's the first place I tried. They didn't have it. It was the Maricopa County Attorney's Office that tried John Carpenter. They kept this stuff after trial. It just went into storage. It took them a long time to find it. That's why it's taken so long to get this case out there again. This, if this is lying in a box for 40 years of vials of blood and so forth... Eleven boxes. Eleven boxes. Of but, evidence. But how can you... How can you ensure, how the, could the police ensure that in all those 40 years, practically, this, this evidence wasn't tampered with or it just wasn't corrupted by the elements? It was in an evidence locker, locked up, and all of the evidence, the DNA evidence and the blood, you see a picture of me, your YouTube uh, folks have seen it, of me holding a vial of Bob Crane's blood taken at his autopsy the day after his murder. That's what we use for comparison purposes. All this stuff is in plastic, and it's sealed, and it was never opened. We photographed all of this, Richard, to establish chain of custody, and it was also photographed when it arrived at Bodie Selmark Forensics in Lorton, Virginia, which did the testing for JonBenet Ramsey, O.J. Simpson, and Bob Crane way back in the 90s. We wanted to make sure that nobody could come back and say, you monkeyed around with the evidence. We did not. And was there any resistance when you approached Maricopa County uh, to have access to the evidence? It was remarkable. They, they were incredibly helpful. The county attorney right now, Bill Montgomery, who I have a long relationship with, Bill said, if you can find something out that we could not prove in a, in a court of law, I'm all for it. His quote to me was, I am not afraid of the truth. And sometimes the truth comes not just in a courtroom, but even through news reporters and investigators looking into a case. He was all for it. He gave us a blessing to do it. Although, I, I should point out, while we were the client, they handled all the evidence, as they would in any other cold case. We did not handle and ship off that evidence. They did it. And why hadn't it occurred to them? Uh, since the original trial of John Carpenter back in 1994. Why didn't it occur to them to, to go ahead and retest? John Carpenter had died four years after trial, after he was acquitted in 1994. There was no one left in their, in their mind to try. They felt the case was solved in their mind, even though it was technically a cold case, because no one had been convicted of the crime. But in their mind, they put the guy on trial that they believe committed the crime. And short...
they felt if he can learn something more, maybe prove that John Carpenter was a killer. I mean, if we could have proved in our sample that the DNA in that car came from Bob Crane, case closed. The original title of the book was, the working title, Case Closed. I fully believed that the DNA was going to come back, Bob Crane's blood in John Carpenter's car, case closed. That's not what we got. There was a, um, oh, uh, just before we, we talk about the, the, the results, and uh, the, you sort of built a TV special around this, I want to dial back to John Carpenter, because I, I sort of, I missed, I forgot to ask you about this. After the murder in 1978, and he fled back to L.A., it's interesting, it turns out he was staying with Richard Dawson. Yeah, that's right. What was that all about, and was Dawson ever interviewed? Oh, boy. You know, this was very intriguing to investigators. Dawson and Carpenter were friends. But Carpenter goes home to L.A. and doesn't go back to the apartment that he shares with his girlfriend. He stays with Richard Dawson for two days. And, in fact, when police tracked him down, they called him from Carpenter's apartment and said, we want to talk to you. And Carpenter said, I'm at my mother's house. I'm about 70 miles away. It's going to take me an hour to get there, but I'm glad to talk to you. Not true. He was at Richard Dawson's house. Now, why did he lie? There could be many reasons. One, Dawson may have said, don't tell him. Don't tell him you're with me. I don't want to get involved. Who knows? Did Carpenter tell Dawson that weekend what had happened if he was a killer? Police believe he might have, that he might have actually shared it with Dawson. Others say not true. And others say this is all much to do about nothing that Carpenter was staying with his friend, that he was maybe a little bit distraught that Bob Crane had been killed, and that he was staying with Dawson just to hang out. But, but it gave him a protection, a layer of protection, to be with a celebrity that would keep police a little bit at bay, right? They're going to handle a guy like Dawson with kid gloves. They're not going to come kind of barging in with, you know. They're going to have to be a little deferential. So it gave him a little bit of a buffer. Because Dawson, by this time, was hosting Family Feud, was he not? I believe that's right. I think he had just started to in 70, let's see, by 78. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that, but Dawson was well-known. Right. Huge star. Certainly he was uh, well-known from Match Game with Gene Rayburn. Yeah, I think he may have been. He may have been on Family Feud at that point. Right, right. Um, And then, of course, uh, Dawson does not uh, attend the funeral. Everyone else was there, I'm guessing, Werner Klemperer and... Everybody was there. Right. Everyone was there. Dawson is not there. It's curious. Yeah. I mean, there was there was some tension between the two of them, between right. Crane and Dawson. And maybe Dawson felt it was disingenuous to attend if, he, if they weren't friends. That's right. That's, That's good... possible, too. So we have to always, before we read too much into this stuff and speculate, there may be very good reasons why he didn't go. All right, so the new DNA testing is um, complete on this speck of blood that was on found on the passenger side of the, the rental car belonging to John Carpenter. Again, the blood type matched Bob Crane's. It was B negative. Now B we're getting B positive. Apologies. Right. Now we're getting the sort of the definitive DNA test. Yes. But there's something we have to we're, we're, we've got about three and a half minutes here, but it's important to point out something about this DNA test, how it's almost too effective, too good. Explain. Well, what we got by the time we had that sample, when it got to Bodie Selmark, I talked to the techs and they said, you know, what we're looking at here, yes, it's a sample from the car, 
that once had blood on it, but we can't see any visible blood on this sample. So now we're left with DNA tests, and we use something called PowerPlex fusion. We rolled the dice with one final test. That's why the, the book is called The Final Close-Up, because this stuff now has been exhausted. There is nothing left to test in the Bob Crane murder. All of these samples have now been exhausted. When they got to it, this had been tested four times already. There's no visible blood on it. So now what we're left with is getting cellular material. And we got something. We got DNA from an unidentified male and a partial profile too degraded to reach any conclusions. The problem is, and you alluded to it, Richard, is that DNA testing is so sensitive now, it is possible that what we picked up on that sample is DNA that has nothing to do with this crime. That is possible. And Bodhi said, I pressed them on this, they said, we are not in the, in, the, in the business of telling you what this means. That's up to prosecutors and defense attorneys. But it is equally possible that it was from the blood and that the blood just didn't match, that it's not Bob Crane's blood in there. And it's equally possible that you're getting DNA, stray DNA, uh, outlier DNA from some other source. And this is, is this being revealed live on, on Fox News in Arizona? We did it. We did it in November of 2016. We revealed it live with a panel of all the people connected with this crime. Rick Romley, the prosecutor, uh, Barry Vassell, the first investigator on the case, the jury foreman, Michael Lake, Bob Crane Jr. was there, and Stephen Avila, John Carpenter's attorney, live from Oakland, California. We had everyone there. And so, again, on live TV, Bob Crane Jr., in attendance, it comes down the DNA, you cannot definitively identify Bob Crane's blood in the That's right. Car. It is not Bob Crane's blood, and it's not from John Carpenter. It is from an unidentified male. And we have since had people look at that DNA result who say now that that secondary sample, the too degraded to reach any conclusions, based on the alleles that are there, they say that is not Bob Crane either. Oh, boy. And yeah. so the reaction, uh, you looked over, I'm guessing, immediately to Bob Crane Jr. What's the expression on his face? He gasped. Um, TMZ reported bombshell on live TV. That's how they, that was the headline. Um, not Bob Crane's blood, live bombshell on TV. Bob Crane Jr. was stunned. But as we reviewed it afterwards, you know, a lot of these guys who staked their career on this case, said, you know, I think you're picking up phantom DNA. You're picking up stray DNA that doesn't have anything to do with the crime. That's what they've fallen back on, and I fully understand it, and it's very possible. So We don't know why we got this result, Richard. Uh, I expected it would be Bob Crane case closed. That's not what we got. And how did Bob take it? Did you discuss it with him after? I mean, you must well, have felt I horrible. Felt, uh, you know, I did this really, frankly, for him. That's the reason we did it. And again, if he had said, I don't want you going down this road, there, or the family's been through too much, I wouldn't have done it. I really would not have done it. He wanted us to do it. He said, if you can learn anything, it's been worth it. And we learned things. We just didn't, we just didn't get quite there with linking Carpenter definitely to the crime. But everyone involved in the case, yourself included, still remains convinced it was John Carpenter. Well, you know, I, I believe so, but I will tell you, Richard, this finding does cast reasonable doubt. And I believe if prosecutors had this result in 1994, 
they wouldn't have dared put John Carpenter on trial. So the case remains open? You know, if a murder weapon surfaces, if that tripod surfaces, somebody comes forward with it, and it's Bob Crane's blood on the tripod, maybe then, with John Carpenter's prints on it, maybe then we'll have an answer. John Hook. I think we, we are still not there. John Hook, thank you so much for this. Richard, thank you. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>